Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. This is a wondrous chapter. You'll need to take it home and do a lot more with it than I'm going to do in a sermon tonight. Um, what prompted me into this chapter, a survey that John Dixon talks about in one of his books, the 2021 Australian Community Survey, when people were asked about uh, their understanding of Jesus. And of the representative sample, 22% agreed that Jesus is a mythical or fictional character. 29% said they don't know if Jesus existed. And 49% said, yeah, they believe Jesus is a real person. So more than half of the Australians surveyed actually either don't believe Jesus existed or don't know or believe he's fictional. One in two Australians have got no clarity any longer about the personhood, the teachings, the work, the reality of Jesus. Uh, For me, this was added to by a conversation with one of our grandkids recently uh, when she said, um, Jesus never existed. You can't trust history. Um, Science is the only way to make sense of what is true. Uh, This is a girl going to a public school, but also religious education, which she resents. And one of her friends had told her that, and she's accepted it. It reminded me that the task of the church at the moment is to name Jesus as a friend, as the person we pray to, as uh, the person we trust. At a recent conference where I was Speaking, one of the teachers said to me, well, what can we do, given that our classes are full of kids who've never heard anything about Jesus and don't believe he exists? And I said, well, I think we've got to name Jesus as real, as our friend, the person we get up in the morning and speak with, the person that we trust for life, the person that we ask to guide us, um, the person uh, who loves us and who rescues the world through what he's done. The person to whom the Bible bears witness. What's happening in John chapter 12 is that people want to see Jesus. Uh, John started out this way. At that point in chapter 2, the disciples were coming to see Jesus. They wanted to meet Jesus. They wanted to see him. They wanted to go and find out. And now in chapter 12, it's not Galilean disciples, it's Greeks who want to see Jesus. And there's a real tipping point in the book of John, actually, that uh, the Pharisees are saying in John chapter 12, uh, verse 19 and then 20, the whole world is coming to Jesus. Uh, This is the world which throughout John has been dark and rebellious, and God loves this world. And yet this world turns its back on Jesus and chooses darkness. But now, suddenly, the world is coming to Jesus. Greeks are coming to Jesus. It's Passover time. Crowds are coming to Jesus. 
And John 12 then results in this remarkable revelation of what kind of Jesus they're going to see. Don't doubt it, in Australia we are in a post-Christian era when more than a half of our neighbours and friends don't know or don't believe Jesus ever existed. Paul wrote in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain because he'll be with Jesus. The testimony of the church, starting perhaps from scratch, is just to tell the stories of Jesus again, just to remind people of the teachings of Jesus again. Let people see Jesus through the stories, the narratives, the words that we read and hear in Scripture. Well, there are three ways that we see Jesus in John chapter 12. The first is this wondrous dinner. Uh, Mealtimes in the Gospels are often wondrous. This might be one of the most wondrous of all. We'll talk about the wondrous dinner in 1 to 11. Then the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Verses 12 and following, we see Jesus mounted on a colt, on a donkey, uh, praised and worshipped as he comes into Jerusalem. And then the hour of glory. Jesus talks about the moment that is unfolding before their eyes. So we're going to see Jesus in three scenes, and I'm going to spend most of the time in that latter one, the hour of glory. Uh, But let's just talk for a few minutes about the wonderful or wondrous dinner. One of the things that we're going to have to do as church now is to prompt curiosity about Jesus, um, to inspire wonder about Jesus. And this dinner is wondrous. Uh, it's, fe- it's Passover festival, and yet Jesus doesn't go into Jerusalem yet. He's just three kilometres away at Bethany at a kind of a miracle dinner because Lazarus is there with his sisters Martha and Mary and with the disciples, including Judas Iscariot. Imagine being at table at that dinner that night. Perhaps you're sitting next to Lazarus. What sort of small talk do you make with a person who was dead for four days or longer? At the time that Jesus came to Lazarus's tomb, uh, his sister Martha protested, Lord, by this time there's a bad odour. He's been there for four days. The old King James used to say, uh, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> Who knows what he went through in that time, but he's reclining at table. And it's clear in John 12 that Lazarus has become a bit of a star. He's sort of exhibit number one for how remarkable Jesus is. A large crowd of Jews, verse 9, hear that Jesus is there and they come not only because of him, but they want to see Lazarus. They want to see the guy who was dead, who is alive and eating a meal at table. I love chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says that the chief priests who have wanted to kill Jesus now want to kill Jesus and Lazarus because Lazarus was raised from the dead. And that just strikes me as a very bizarre strategy 
to kill somebody who's been raised from the dead and to kill somebody who raised him from the dead as though that's going to solve anything. Uh, Surely the one who has power to raise from the dead can be raised from the dead if you kill him. So the Pharisees are at an end. They don't know what to do, but they don't want to come to Jesus. And then during the meal, this wonderful dinner, Mary pours out pure nard, very expensive, and anoints Jesus. The perfume fills the place. It's remarkable. And it's remarkable because suddenly this dinner takes on the character of a burial and a wake. It's a celebration and it's a burial. This dinner is prefiguring what will happen in one week's time as Jesus is then anointed and burial. The meal, the place, full of meaning and significance. And there is a fly in the ointment. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the complainer, the whinger, the thief, is at the dinner. And he's complaining about the wasted, poured out perfume. Uh, This perhaps partly explains why he betrays Jesus uh, several days forward. Perhaps Judas had thought that being a disciple of Jesus would be lucrative, that he would become rich, that he would have the opportunity to make money. But this expensive perfume is poured out. He's angry, he's resentful. Perhaps this is the tipping point for the betrayal that will occur. There's tension and there's drama at this dinner and it continues when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is recognised as King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Crowds are crying out. Your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus is praised. He will be glorified. The Pharisees are anxious, more and more desperate, because the whole world is chasing after Jesus. But the question that's going to be answered in chapter 12, 20 and following is, but what kind of king is Jesus? The crowds are praising him. Lazarus is an exhibition of his power. But what kind of king? And I think that what happens in 12, 20 and following is really challenging for all who want to be a disciple of Christ. Greeks are coming, seeking Jesus. We want to see Jesus, they say. Philip goes to Andrew. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And Jesus' response is remarkable. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Those words, the hour has come, are contrasting with several previous occasions in the gospel where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Remember at the wedding in Cana, Jesus said to Mary, it's not, this is not my time yet. Uh, this is climactic now though, he says, the hour has come, it's time. It's time for people to see. Revelation is about to occur. Uh, think of a time in your life when 
that moment came. Something big is about to occur. It's the hour. I, I thought back to HSC exams back in the day. Uh, the supervisors would say, OK, it's time. Uh, you can turn over your papers, pick up your pens and start your exam. It's time. What about an operation in a hospital? The anaesthetist comes and says, it's time. You're going into the theatre now. Or perhaps boarding an aeroplane and saying goodbye with tears to family and friends. It's time. You've got to board. You've got to go. It's time. It's time for Jesus. It's time. So what follows in chapter 12 is really central because Jesus is about to tell us tell his disciples, tell the crowds, tell the Greeks, revelation about what kind of king he is. The world is coming. It's like a high point. But what Jesus is about to say and do defines his kingship in a way that's quite wonderful. And I want to give you five characteristics in John 12 of what people see when they see Jesus. And I think those five continue on today, of course, and also define the kind of discipleship that we are called into. In 1224 to 30, the first thing I think people saw that day was how troubled Jesus is as king. Troubled but trusting. Agonised but determined. Jesus is not a remote king. Some of the images that we saw earlier might show kings who are wealthy and proud and distant from the troubles of their kingdoms. Jesus is an agonised king. He's a troubled king. He's a king who's wrestling with what's about to happen. And yet he says, this is why I came. This is the time to fulfil your purpose, God. He's not turning back. He's praying, glorify your name, show them what you're like, reveal your kingship. But Jesus is troubled. He's a servant king who is entering into the pain of the world and he illustrates what that's like with the image of a seed. Memorise these verses. Jesus says, if you love your life like a seed that will not die to self, that will not be buried to your own selfish ambition, that will not give yourself away in work and service and love for others, entering into the pain of the world to rescue then you're like a seed that will never produce fruit. Jesus portrays this lone seed who must be buried, who must die to grow a crop of flourishing life and hope for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. If life is to multiply and flourish in our dark world, Jesus must die and his disciples must follow in like measure. The seed dying to self, the seed being buried, 
this is Jesus' intent. And it struck me in thinking about this passage that Jesus is still a troubled king. The Holy Spirit is troubled. The Father is troubled. He's grieved. He's interceding. He's entering into. He's pursuing the injustices, the tragedies, the violence of the world. God is calling his people to enter into the trouble. Uh, The idea that Christian faith and discipleship can be without trouble is not in Scripture. We've bought into it, I think, because the gospel somehow got married up with triumphalistic and consumeristic wealth and health. But the first thing and the thing that struck me most about the Jesus we see in John 12, at this time of revelation when the world is coming now, it's the first time we've had that, is that he's troubled, he's wrestling, he's struggling. This is a Gethsemane moment in John. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour, Father. Glorify your name. A troubled Jesus. The second thing the crowd saw, and it's very strange in verses 24 to 30, is a Jesus who is in an utterly unique relationship with God the Father. You get this incredible Jesus speaking out and then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke. Jesus said This voice is for your benefit. There's a divine interaction. There's a dependency. There's a conversation between Father in heaven and Son on earth. And people see that here. We've seen it at his baptism. This is my Son whom I love. The Spirit descending. But now we see it in the struggle and the agony of the wrestling. Jesus is the unique King who does what the Father does, who honours the Father entirely, who in complete agreement with the Father gives his life for the sake of the world. And there's this thundering as the Father and the Son speak to each other in this passage. There is no other king like Jesus in unique, dependent relationship with the Father. And this word glory, glorified, is really important in John right through, but certainly here. Father, glorify your name. And often glory, certainly in the Old Testament, often glory is a light shining out. It's fire, it's rumbling, it's impressive. It's a temple or a tabernacle being brilliantly shone upon by the glory of God, its presence. But the image for glory here is not that outward one, it's an inward one, it's a depth image, it's a burial image, it's a character image. Jesus will be glorified by being buried. Jesus will be glorified by giving his life away, by loving unto death. 
the Father. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. And I think those words encompass the full gospel, suffering, death, burial, waiting, then resurrection, ascension, intercession and return. But it all starts with this sacrificial giving of life. So that's the second thing I think we see when we see Jesus, this unique relationship between Father God and Jesus, God's Son. But then in three phrases in 31 and 32, Jesus tells us what else we will see in this hour. He says, you're going to see God's judgment on the world. And the word from which we get judgment, the Greek word for judgment, is crisis. There's a crisis in the world. The world can't be rescued. The world can't be saved. Jesus is going to take the crisis on himself, step into the crisis out of love, and be crucified. And when his enemies imagine Jesus is defeated, the opposite is the case. What happens to Jesus is what the world deserves. But the judgment on Jesus, crucified, is God's judgment on the world. This is what the world deserves, and Jesus is doing it for you. And having taken that judgment on himself, having dealt with the crisis, the world can now be rescued. Jesus is the rescuer, the life giver. That's the third thing that you'll see. And the fourth thing you'll see, remarkably, is Jesus drives out evil power, the world ruler, the cosmocrator in Greek, named in scripture as Satan or the devil. We're going to see power, albeit muted and disguised in death and burial, as Satan is defeated and the world is reclaimed by its true king through his death on the cross. He is not defeated as he dies. Death is defeated as he dies and rises again. And he is crowned king of the world, the true king of the world, and that false king, that pretender, is driven out, cast out. And the fifth thing we see is that Jesus who offers life to people from all over the world. Verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I will draw all people to myself. And he means Jews and Greeks and Aussies and Kiwis and Tongans and Pakistanis. I will draw all people from all the nations to myself. That's what we see. But all of this hangs on and hinges around these words which John features, lifted up. When I am lifted up, that's what you'll see. And of course, lifted up refers to both crucifixion and coronation. Being lifted up means death, agony, the cross. Being lifted up means glory, love, freedom, power, resurrection. 
Jesus in John on the cross is the greatest and most glorious king ever. For John, when Jesus is killed, he is enthroned, he is crowned king of love, king of life, and above his head the sign read, this is the king, this is the king, in three languages. Evangelism in John starts from the cross because Jesus is glorified at the cross. Lifted up is a weighty word with this double-edged meaning of crucified and crowned. Crucified and crowned. And in a world where kings were and often are lifted up, elite, self-seeking, power-grabbing, distant, perhaps uncaring, lifted up a distance away from the troubles of the world, when Jesus is lifted up, he embraces the troubles of the world and invites us to do the same thing. It's terribly sad that the story of Jesus is increasingly unknown and the King of Kings, at least in this country, too often dismissed, ignored, doubted, declared to be a fiction. The first task of the church, looking outwards, is to make Jesus known again as a living person that we trust, that we talk with, that we hope in, that we ask to guide us. And I think sometimes people are going to think, oh, that's a bit weird, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, my neighbour, my friend, my family member, they talk with Jesus. But we're going to have to convince people again, persuade people again, testify to people again that this is a Jesus who is real. And perhaps what's experienced as a bit weird then becomes a bit curious and a bit wondrous and a bit questioning. And then maybe it becomes faith, hope and love in Jesus because of the testimony of our lives that Jesus is actually our Lord, Saviour, Friend, the one we trust, the one we start each day with in conversation and end each day with in gratitude. To tell the story of Jesus, to name Jesus creatively, faithfully and frequently, that's the task of the church when one in two Australians don't know that he existed or believe he's a myth. Perhaps just two final thoughts. Glory here in John 12, doesn't look very glorious. When seeds are buried in the dark earth, it doesn't appear glorious, but maybe five years on, ten years on, twenty years on, there is a crop, a harvest, fruitfulness that is quite glorious. But glory, I think, often begins with deeds and acts and commitments that aren't seen and aren't brilliant. This is what we might term a hidden glory in John 12. The greatest and most glorious event in human history doesn't look glorious. 
the dying of the seed, the crucifying of the Messiah. There is no pomp and display. It's quiet and profound. And it strikes me that often in our own lives, the best things we do, the most glorious and honouring to God, are never known or seen. They're weighty but unspectacular. It's the perseverance. It's the prayers. It's the quiet acts of generosity. It's the choices to be obedient when no one's watching. You know, I've come out time and time again in John. Jesus despises showmanship. He doesn't want people to believe in him or follow him or love him because he works powerfully and does signs. And the church, I think, at times anyway, been too committed to public display. You might be caring for somebody day by day, patiently, loving and praying, and no one knows the perseverance required that's glorious. You might be committing yourself to pray and love for years, and people don't know, but the prayers are glorious. The choices we make to enter into the glory of Christ look like the death of a lone seed and the fruitfulness somewhere down the line. Glory in John 12 doesn't look glorious. It looks like faithful love, persevering love. And I love that thought. Finally, let's just remind ourselves, say for disciples, of the troubled king. Jesus wrestles, agonises, and is determined, and that's what he asks of his disciples. He will soon after John 12 go into the upper room, and in John 16 he will say to them, in this world, in this world you have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't promise the removal of the trouble. He promises the trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Somewhere along the way, we perhaps bought into the idea that if we became a Christian, all the troubles would be reduced. But the king who is troubled and who enters into the troubles of the world invites us to follow him there and be part of the rescue, part of the love, part of the sacrifice by which the world sees the hope of Christ's good news. We've got a remarkable verse in Hebrews 5, and I'll finish with this, where it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Disciples of the troubled king will have trouble. Now we're going to have that trouble together, so don't let trouble isolate you. We're going to have that trouble with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit.
the intercession of Jesus at God's right hand and the sure hope of resurrection. But Jesus is a troubled king. And in John 12, as the whole world's coming to him and Greeks want to see him, that's what he reveals. I'm a troubled king. I have a unique relationship with Father God and I will do what he tells me. And I will drive out the false ruler and judge the world and draw people to myself by being lifted up, crucified and glorified at the same time, like the seed that is buried. So I I think the three incidents in chapter 12 form a little triad with the riding on the donkey in the middle and the hallelujah, praise the Lord, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But before it, you've got a burial dinner and after it, you've got a dying seed. So I think the two profound upside-down scenes uh, turn upside down the middle one as well. The king who rides on the donkey to become king, uh, he's being anointed for burial in the first scene. And he's like the seed that's about to die. And that's glory. And that's what discipleship looks like too. Let's pray and we'll finish there. Thank you, Lord. Your word is profound. Your scriptures are remarkable. And uh, if only we could sit with them longer and revel in them all, we would, I think, understand more deeply what's happening in the world with all of its troubles and what glory looks like and what the church needs to look like. So we do ask you to help us here at Alive at Five in Springwood and Winmalee and throughout the mountains to be truly disciples of the one who dies, of the one who is buried, of the one who rises again, but who is glorified in crucifixion and uh, at a celebration is anointed for burial. King of Israel, King of the world, uh, draw people to yourself here in Springwood uh, in these months through this church's witness. Help us to be creative, constant, faithful in naming you as our friend, Lord and Saviour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.